Uh, Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Ephesians. Stephen Curtis Chapman sings, Remember your chains, and remember your chains are gone. I'd also add to that, remember who it was who set you free. And here in the first half of Ephesians, Paul is calling us to remember what God has done. Now let's consider the context of Ephesians. Everything is being built on that understanding, chapters 1 through 3, of what God has done for you. So Ephesians 1 through 3 is not a call to do, but a call to understand. And you remember the shower illustration. Like I said, it's in your bulletin. If you're under the flow of the shower, all the water is coming down on you. And if you are a Christian, that means God chose for you to be under the flow of his blessings. That's Ephesians chapter 1. His blessing, all, blessings, all of his spiritual blessings fall on the Jesus zone. And if you are in Christ or in the beloved, then you are in the Jesus zone. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you, that's election, and he predestined you to be in the Jesus zone where you would receive all these blessings that Kelly Hubley talked about a couple weeks ago. At the end of Ephesians chapter 1, Jeff Marshall covered that last week, Paul is praying for the Ephesians that they would understand what he's been talking about, that they'd get it, that they'd get the full revelation. And you see this pattern in Ephesians, teaching prayer, teaching prayer. And moving into Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is calling you, calling us, to remember our state before Christ. Remember that you were dead. Now, if you're going on a diet, you weigh yourself first so that you can see your progress. And similarly, remember how messed up you were before Christ so that you can see what God has done in your life, so that you can see your spiritual progress. Now, this is a little bit tricky because as you're growing spiritually, you're not just sinning less. You're also becoming more and more convicted when you do sin. So sometimes that makes it feel like it's kind of two steps forward, one step back. Ephesians 2 verse 1 You were dead in your sin, and you were unable to save yourself. Then if you skip to verse 4, my favorite two words in the entire Bible, but God. I was dead in my sin, but God stepped in and resurrected me to new life. H.B. Charles says, the bad news is that you can't save yourself. The good news is that you don't have to. Now, I've titled the sermon today, Dead Men Resurrected to Usefulness. And there's three main sections. Remember you were dead. Then remember God raised you to new life. And remember what he has done. 
And we're going to spend most of our time in the last three verses because there's a lot there to unpack. Why don't you please stand for a responsive reading of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And I encourage you, say it like you mean it. So, I will be the leader and you the congregation. What state was I in before Christ? What did God do? But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that How was I saved? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'm not saved by works, but does God intend for me to do good works? You may be seated. Let's consider the conversion story of John Bunyan. He's the writer of Pilgrim's Progress, I believe the most translated book in the world other than the Bible. He lived during the 17th century, and Bunyan described himself as a sinful man with a filthy, blasphemous mouth. Bunyan actually enjoyed terrorizing Christians with his speech against God, he said that if anyone had committed the unpardonable sin, it was him. He was certain that he had blasphemed the Holy Spirit with all the terrible things that he'd said against God. And as he tells his story, he was going about his normal business when he overheard three or four poor women talking about God and how the Lord had transformed their lives. In his own words, he says, their talk was about the new birth, the work of God in their hearts, as also how they were convinced of their miserable state by nature. They talked how God had visited their souls with his love in the Lord Jesus. I did not understand their meaning, but I was greatly affected by their words. Now, what were these ladies doing? They were remembering their BC days, their miserable state, that they were dead in sin before Christ. They were remembering the work of God in their lives. And this so moved John Bunyan that he decided to clean up his life. He stopped cussing and blaspheming. 
And he actually succeeded in this endeavor so much that his friends applauded him. And in an effort to score more points with God, he volunteered to be the church bell ringer. But he realized that he was still not saved. He had cleaned the outside of the cup, but he was a lost and sinful man on the inside. He still felt the ominous weight of condemnation for his sin. And he was convinced that God would one day, as he was ringing that bell, cause the bell to fall on him and crush him because of his sins. He began to read the Bible and he didn't get it. He said it was like God wasn't even speaking to him until he got to John 6, verse 37, where Jesus says, He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. And this got Bunyan's attention. He said, Oh, the comfort that I found from this word, in no wise. As if Jesus had said, by no means, for nothing, whatever he has done. But Satan would greatly labor to pull this promise from me by telling me that Christ did not mean me and such as I, but sinners of a lower rank that had not done as I had done. But I would answer him again, Satan, there is in these words no such exception. But him that cometh, him, any him, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So moved, John Bunyan received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, and he became a child of God. And at that point, the scriptures came alive to him. Bunyan said that scripture, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, came with great power upon my spirit, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Now was I on high. I saw myself within the arms of grace and mercy. John Bunyan was well aware of his sinful state and his inability to save himself. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us, remember you were dead. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Unsaved people are spiritually dead. Now, this does not mean that non-Christians cannot do good works. Of course they can. They serve others. They donate from their time and their resources. They too are made in the image of God. And God is still restraining sin on earth. They are the blessings of common grace. However, if you share Christ with them, they will not repent of their sin and trust in Jesus. They are spiritually dead. They need a resurrection. I remember years ago sharing Christ with a coworker back when I was a public school teacher and she responded very kindly and she said, I just don't believe. She was spiritually dead and no matter how great my arguments were, I could not bring her back to life. 
God would have to do that. And thankfully, he is in the business of performing resurrections. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So remember you were dead and remember that it was God who raised you to new life. Phil, you want to click for me? Oh, there we go. Pirates say, dead men tell no tales. There are a lot of things that dead men don't do. They don't perform any self-resurrections either. Imagine a dead man at the bottom of a pit. And you walk above and you decide that you're going to help out. So you put up a ladder and you put it down into the pit. And you lean over and you say, Mr. Dead Man, I brought you a ladder. You can climb out now. And the dead man is thinking, no, I cannot. I am dead. For that man to get out of the pit, Jesus Christ has to climb down that ladder, breathe life into him, and carry his sorry soul up the ladder. And that is the amazing work that Jesus does through the Holy Spirit in the lives of his chosen, elect, predestined children. He transfers them from death to life, from lost to the Jesus zone. So remember, God raised you to, to life. And remember what God has done in your life. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. In, the fa in a famous skit in the 1980s, which satirized the self-esteem movement, a character named Stuart Smalley was famous for saying, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. And it picked up. School children across the country were quoting this line, and I have to admit, it brought a lot of smiles to people's faces. During the summer one year, my, uh, in my, my college used the girls' dorms for the guys while the girls were gone. And I remember walking into the bathroom and seeing this sign that the girls had forgotten to take down. It read, close your eyes and say 12 times, I'm a princess. <laughs> Apparently, this really helps. We all like to feel good about ourselves, amen? However, with regard to our spiritual state, before Christ, you didn't look so good. Dead in sin was just not a good look for you. So what happened? How did everything change so much? Just how did you become so wonderful when you were such a mess? 
Verse 4 says that God stepped in and performed a resurrection. Verse 8 says it's by grace. Verse 10 says you are God's workmanship. Verse 22, at the very end of the chapter, sorry, Kellen, I'm dipping into your section, but it says that God has made you his dwelling place. Now, imagine you get a knock on the door. You open the door to find Warren Buffett standing there. And he says, I want to buy your house. I want to live here. Now, you might question, what is it about my house that would make the greatest stock market investor ever want to live here? He's one of the richest men on the planet. Why would he want to move into my house? He could live anywhere and he chooses to live here. An even better question than this is why would the God of the universe want to make his dwelling in my heart? He could live anywhere. Why in my heart? Doesn't he know all the horrible things I've said? The terrible things I've done? The wretched thoughts that have run through my mind? Why would he want to live here? Somehow we go from being dead in sin, verse 1, to becoming the dwelling place for God, verse 22. How did this happen? Verse 4 says God stepped in, and then he made some very significant changes in your life. Now, focusing on verses 8 through 10, I want to go over four things that God does to make us a dwelling place fit for the king. Number one, God saves us by grace. This is his ill-merited favor. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Now, you, you'll hear people say that grace is God's unmerited favor towards us, meaning it's not merited. We did not earn it. We don't deserve it. But actually, grace is better than that. Grace is God's ill-merited favor towards us. Unmerited means you're a neutral. You're not a bad person. You're not a good person. You just haven't been good enough to get the goodies. You haven't earned it. But ill means the opposite of. It's not just that you have not merited God's favor, but you have done the opposite of meriting God's favor. You don't start in neutral. You don't start dead in, you start dead in sin. You weren't God's number one draft pick. It's not that God looked ahead in time and saw, oh, wow, that's going to be a good one. I'm picking that one. No, dead in sin. Our state before God saved us was anything but neutral. We were followers of Satan and enemies of God. Look at verses one through three. Not only did we not deserve his goodness, but we totally and completely deserved his punishment, his anger, his wrath. As Ephesians 2 verse 3 states, we were by nature children of wrath. Now, let me illustrate. Imagine you skip out on work for a month. And then you come to your boss and you say, I want to get paid for last month. And your boss replies, 
but you didn't work last month. And you say, yeah, I know, it was a busy month. <laughs> but I need the money. And your boss, out of the kindness of his heart, says, <laughs> even though you didn't work, I'm a loving boss, and I'll still pay you the $5,000. You didn't earn the money, but you get paid anyway. That is unmerited favor. But that's not grace. Grace is much better than that. Grace is God's ill-merited favor. Now, let's imagine that during that month that you didn't work, you got busy. You got on the phone, you called up all your coworkers, and you just smeared your boss's name. So much so that the next day, half of his employees quit. Then at night, you sneak into the office, and on his desk, in red lipstick, you write, micromanager. <laughs> you pour me melted wax down the drains. You see his trophy case with all his prized business trophies and you take a crowbar and you just bash that thing to bits. You steal a few computers. Then not satisfied, you come back the next night and you set the office on fire. You burn the place to the ground. Then you come back the next day and you see your boss sadly wandering through the ashes of what used to be his office. Your boss looks up at you as if to say, how could you do this? And then you respond, yeah, I'm sorry, I got issues. Pent-up anger, childhood stuff I haven't gotten over yet. But can I get that paycheck? And then after you not working, and after all the terrible things you've done, your boss still writes you the paycheck for the month you didn't work. But he writes the check out for $1 million. That is ill-merited favor. That is grace. When we go to God, it's not just that we have not earned his favor. We have earned the opposite of his favor. We have played the John Bunyan. We have sinned greatly against our holy God. We have blasphemed his name and broken his laws. Everything we have is from him. And yet we use those resources, our hands, our minds, our talents, to do evil against him. And after all the offenses we have piled up against our God, we throw ourselves upon his mercy. We beg him to forgive us. And shocker of shocker, he does. But he doesn't stop there. He makes us righteous. He gives us eternal life. He adopts us into his family. He showers us with his love and his riches. That is the grace of God. And that is what it's like living in the Jesus zone. Man-made religion across the planet says, try harder, do better. Clean up your act so that you can be good enough for God. Be a good Muslim. Balance the scale so there's more weight on the good side than on the bad side. 
Be a good Mormon, a good Hindu, a good Jew, a good Buddhist. If you're good enough, then God will accept you. But Christianity says the opposite. You'll never be good enough for God. He is perfect and you are not. He is holy and you are heinous. And that's why God sent his son to make you good enough. Because you couldn't do it on your own. Christ died on the cross in your place so that your sins could be forgiven. So that you could be made righteous. So that you could be good enough for God. So that you could walk boldly into his presence. Once I got to share the gospel with a Hindu man named Sujit. And he told me how with Hinduism, it's all about karma. You do good, and then good happens to you. If you're a bad chicken in this life, you might come back as a ferocious bear and keep getting worse. But if you're a good chicken, then you might come back as a docile cow or a human. And if you get better and better and better, eventually you will reach nirvana where you lose your consciousness and your sense of self and become part of the God, as he says it. How? By trying harder and harder in each life after you are in reincarnated to improve yourself. Sujit told me about a man named Yogi, not the bear, who taught that all the religions were just different ways of getting to God. And I shared my friend Dean's story of him converting from Hinduism to Christianity. And I quoted John 14, verse 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. I told Sujit about the consequences of sin and the penalty if you die without Christ. And I had Sujit's attention. I continued, Sujit, if there were other ways, Jesus would not have had to die. He could have just directed traffic. Try Buddha, try Hinduism. Read the Bhagavad Gita, try Muhammad. Jesus could have just directed people to any one of the many self-improvement religions of our world. Jesus could have just joined the masses and said, do better, try harder, be a good person. But he knew that all of those paths lead to a dead end. They all lead to the lake of fire. And if any of Adam's descendants were ever going to make it to heaven, it would never happen from human efforts to be a better person. It would require grace. And that grace would only be available after the demands of justice had been met. Our sin required punishment. You commit the crime... But in our case, Jesus took the punishment on himself at the cross so he could give us grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And with these words, Paul shatters once and for all man-made works-based religion. It's so that no one may boast. Why am I saved and the next guy is not? If I'm saved because I'm better than him, 
then I can boast. If I'm saved because I made a good decision and he didn't, or I have more faith, or I'm smarter, then I can boast. But I'm saved not because I'm better than the next guy. I'm not saved because of anything in me. I'm saved because God has been gracious to me. Now, I clarify here, it's so no human can boast. You can't boast, I can't boast, but our God, he can boast. He does boast, and he should boast, because he's good, he's powerful, he's kind, and full of grace. Praise his name. God gives the grace, so God gets the glory. He does the saving we do the worshiping. He lavishes us with the riches of heaven, and our job is to enjoy it. Your God is completely obsessed with his own glory, and he is fixated on sharing that glory with you and me. Why? Because he loves us. Hear the boasting of your God from Isaiah chapter 43. Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. Notice how God is constantly connecting his glory with the love and kindness that he's given to us. It's almost like they're Lego pieces that fit into each other. Fear not, for I am with you. Now imagine if I had said that to you. You have nothing to fear because I am here. I mean, it sounds a bit proud and ridiculous coming from my mouth, but it is very appropriate coming from God. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created. Why? Why were you created? God says, for my glory. Let's look back at Ephesians 2 verse 8. I've added a little grammar to it for you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And at this point, we get into a part in our text that is highly debated. And the question is, what is this referring to? Now, we know that this must be referring to something in the previous sentence, but what part? And there's different theories. Some think it may be referring to salvation or grace or faith. I mean, those are the three possibilities. And to know, we need to consider the gender of the words used here. Grace and faith are feminine, and saved is masculine. But the word this is neuter. It's genderless. And, and a lot of commentators are arguing because it's referring to both feminine and masculine words. 
So the fact that Paul uses a neuter pronoun tells us that he's referring to all three. John Calvin argued that this refers to the grand package of salvation by grace through faith. Now, salvation and grace are obviously gifts of God. But Paul is saying here that faith is too. Number two, God saves us through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You're going to have this verse memorized by the end of this. In order to be saved, you must believe in Jesus Christ. That nonsense that, oh, if you're a good Buddhist or a good Muslim, as long as you're really, you do a good job of whatever religion was thrust upon you at childhood, then you'll be saved is, is nonsense. The Bible is very clear. You must believe in Jesus Christ. There is no way around it. God does the saving, but how do we come to God? We come by believing. And Paul makes clear that even that faith comes from God. Dr. Abraham Kuyper, he says to paraphrase Ephesians 2.8, and this is also in your bulletin, it is indeed by grace that you are saved through faith. And lest you should now begin to say, but we deserve credit at least for believing, Paul will immediately add that even this faith or even this exercise of faith is not of yourselves, but is God's gift. You don't even get credit for your own faith. That too is from God. We see this in other places of scripture. If you think, oh, that's just, this is just a one-off John found in Ephesians, you can go to Philippians 1.29 and we see that our faith is granted to us by God. You can go to Acts 16 verse 14 and we see that God opens Lydia's heart to believe. First convert, I believe, in Philippi. So then you may be thinking, okay, so the grace is from God, the faith is from God, but what about the good works? The good works I do after I'm saved. At least those must be from me, right? Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God prepared them, we walk in them. It's interesting, even the good works we do, we do them because God thought of them ahead of time and planned that we would do them. And it says he's, we are his workmanship. So God is molding and fashioning our lives toward that end that we might be fit to accomplish the good works that he thought of beforehand for us to do. And this gives your life meaning. You have purpose. You matter. You, aren't, you weren't an accident. And God wants to use you. Number three, God saves us for the purpose of accomplishing his to-do list. Now, if you know me, you know that I start off every morning with a blank sheet of paper. And I write out my to-do list. And I love my to-do list. I love getting things done. Well, God has a to-do list for you, and he gets great pleasure as he works through you to accomplish the plans and purposes he has for you. 
So why did he save you? Yes, because he loves you. Yes, he wants to show off his glory, but also he's got work for you to do. You're probably still wondering, okay, so who's doing these works, him or me? Philippians 2, 12 through 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You do it, work it out, get it done. It's your job. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work. Why? For his good pleasure. So this is a paradox here. We have a seeming contradiction. Is God doing it? Am I doing it? And it's very clear that, that uh, it's synergistic. We are working with God to accomplish his good purposes and to do his good works. And he loves it. He's delighted by it. Verse 13 says, he does it for his good pleasure. God saves us by grace. He fills our hearts with faith. We believe on him. And that's when we truly start becoming better people. Because, number four, God makes us into his beautiful masterpieces. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Now, you could translate this, we are his masterpiece. We are his work of art. As Roman nine, Romans 9 says, Paul uh, says that he is the potter and we are the clay. He is a master of making something beautiful out of something that's not so beautiful. In the case of his beloved children, he is making vessels of honor. Ever since Adam, he's been making beautiful people out of dirt. He transforms us because he loves us. He does it for our good, but he also does it so that we would be to the praise of his glorious grace. In junior high and high school, I roller skated competitively. And during that time, I acquired 40 to 50 or so trophies, which I proudly placed on my shelf and I had to ask my mom to dig up a couple from a drawer in our house, but there's a couple for you down there if you saw them. But what do you do when you get trophies? You put your trophies on display. You make sure there's no dust on them. Why? Because they say something about you. You make them look good because they make you look good. Similarly, God makes us look good because we make him look good. He boasts before Satan, consider my servant Job. John Corson says, we are trophies of his grace. Angels will scratch their heads with their wings. Picture that. And marvel perpetually at the grace and goodness God demonstrated in choosing a guy like me. You see, wanting to illustrate his grace to all of creation, through all of the ages to come, the Father chose not righteous people, not angels either, but sinners and rebels and stiff-necked people like you and me. I don't get down on myself, said Paul. I did that when I was under the law, but now I realize I am a trophy of his grace. And that he, by his goodness, and because of his big-heartedness, chose people like me in order that all of eternity 
might marvel at his mercy. End quote. So in light of this, salvation, grace, faith, life transformation, where does your value come from? Is it based on perceived value or intrinsic value? Is it based on your performance, your strengths, your abilities, what other people think of you? Or is it based on God's work in you? Now, if you turn to that other page with all the illustrations, at the bottom there is a chart. And we're going to start on the left side of the chart with perceived value. My perceived value comes from my giftedness or skill set, what I bring to the table. It comes from my internal evaluation, what I think I bring to the table. It comes from external evaluation, what other people think I bring to the table. And it comes from my interpretation of others, what I think others think that I bring to the table. One famous psychologist said it this way, self-esteem is not based on what you think of yourself. It's not based on what others think of you. Your self-esteem is based on what you think others think about you. How others respond to me makes me feel better or worse about myself. I'm constantly at the mercy of other people's opinions. Perceived value is flesh-dependent, it's others-focused, and it's others-regulated. And if that is where you get your value, you are living on an emotional roller coaster. And I'd encourage you to get off. This is the game we play, and it's not a fair fight. Some people are smarter. Some people have lower IQs. Some are incredibly good-looking, tall, dark, and handsome like Caleb Cunningham. And some are not. And whether you're ranking high or low on perceived value, either way, your estimation of yourself leads you to sin. High perceived value leads to relational pride and anger. Michael Jordan is known by many as the greatest basketball player ever. At one time, he was the most widely known person on the planet more well-known than any movie star or any political figure. His perceived value was very high. And this led to a lot of relational pride and anger in Jordan's life. Once he was confronted about not being a team player, Tex Winter said, hey, Jordan, there's no I in team. Jordan piped back, there's not, but there's an I in win. Michael Jordan was known to break out in fits of rage. On one incident, after losing a basketball game, this is going to make you feel a whole lot better about yourself, believe me. Uh, so one incident, after losing a basketball game, he cussed out his teammates, kicked a chair, and stormed out of the locker room. Another time, he screamed that his teammates were playing like a bunch of sissies. And still another time, he punched steam, teammate Steve Kerr, current head coach of the Warriors, in the face during practice. A news correspondent said Jordan was angry and seething because while he had extraordinary talent, 
and the numbers too, he had no one of considerable substance to rely upon. When your perceived value is very high, you tend to have little patience with people you see as being less than you. And because Jordan thought so highly of himself, he didn't want his teammates making him look bad. So he would get furious when he felt like his teammates weren't pulling their weight. Now, on the other hand, low perceived value, maybe you feel like you're not bringing a lot to the table, you're not talented or good looking or smart, low perceived value leads to, not humility, sorry, low perceived value leads to relational paralysis. You find yourself withdrawing from other people. You don't want them to see your weaknesses. Relational paralysis and depression or withdrawal. After retiring, people said that Jordan was a so-so basketball coach who was somewhat bored with life and living in the past. What happened? His perceived value diminished because now he wasn't measuring up so well. The goal is that we have got to stop thinking like the world. Perceived value is based on comparisons, and that is a foolish way to live. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 12, that those who compare themselves with others are without understanding. We need to stop getting our value based on what we perceive other people think of us and start getting our value based on what God has done for us. That is our intrinsic value, or I would, ask, or would argue our actual value. Now let's move to the right side, the right column there, and you see that intrinsic value is gifted by God. Ephesians chapter two. It's not based on what I bring to the table, but based on what Jesus has already brought to the table. It's defined by God. And parents, your kids need to know this stuff. It's defined by God. Isaiah 43 verse four, God says, you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. If you're thinking of a verse to put up on the wall, that one might be it. You're precious, you're valued. I love you. Base your value on that. It's illuminated by God. God wants us to know it. Romans 8, 16. Intrinsic value is not what I do. It's who I am. John 1, 12. I see that my value comes from the fact that I am his child. Intrinsic value is secure and unchanging. It's not like a basketball career that one day will fizzle out. It's not like your good looks that fade with time. Yeah, you guys are really good looking. But one day you're going to get ugly. <laughs> Intrinsic value is reliable because it's based on what God says about you. Now, there are some hard knocks in this life. And when your friend comes to you and says, I screamed at my kids today. I blew it on the internet. I relapsed. I'm such a failure. I feel like I don't measure up. When they say these things, where are you going to take them? 
Are you going to stand them in front of the mirror of self-esteem and say, you're good enough, you're smart enough, or you're a princess, you're a princess? Because the solution is not in self, but in the Savior. So how did you get so wonderful? And how are you going to get better? It is grace. It is the goodness of your God who is working on you. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. You know that's true. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. God saved you by grace and granted you faith. He has showered you with these precious promises and very precious gifts. You are his beloved child. And you are standing in the stream of his blessings. You're looking better and better all the time. Why? Because you're a masterpiece. You are his work of art. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why don't you stand and let's pray. In the quietness of your heart, I want to encourage you to remember your past. Remember your chains. Remember that you were dead and God raised you to new life. Remember that he did everything and he gets all the credit. And because he did the work, no one can undo what he has done. Remember that God has purpose for your life, good works he's planned for you to do. And consider where have you been getting your value from? From what other people think of you or from what God has done in you? Do you see yourself especially chosen and loved by God as God's masterpiece? And do you trust that he will finish the work he's begun in you even if he's not moving as fast as you'd like. Why don't you just take a moment in the quietness of your heart and pray through those things. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can get off the roller coaster today. And Lord, for those of us with high, those with high perceived value, we can leave our pride and anger behind and start getting our value based on what you've done in us. For those who are struggling with low perceived value, we can leave that behind and see ourselves as treasured in your eyes, God. Lord, we thank you that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. It's a gift from you. And you get all the glory. God, thank you that we are your trophies. And just like Job, you want to show us off, to show off what you've done in our lives, God. And we trust that you will finish the work that you've begun in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen.